0: Good morning to all you smiling faces And to you frowning faces You need a donut (laughs) Well I heard about a guy, it's an old story but it is worth repeating A man and his wife go to this marriage conference And you have to register And so they walk up and the man walks up to register, both he and his wife. And there are two lines to register. One line says, henpecked husbands. It's a mile long. Another line says, non henpecked husbands. There's only one guy standing in it. So this husband thinks, well, henpecked or not, I'm getting in the short line. And so he goes up there to the short line and asks this guy, he says, you know, you're. You're standing in the non henpecked line. I just, I have to congratulate you. He says, but I also have to ask you, how in the world do you do it? And the guy turns around and says, well, to be honest, my wife told me to stand here. <laughs> it's funny because it's true, not that all husbands are henpecked, but we all long for approval. We all long for love and acceptance, and we will do crazy things, saying yes to crazy things sometimes in order to get that love and acceptance. I mean, we are people of our culture. We are products of our culture. The fact that nobody in here, I don't think anybody does, is wearing a turban shows that we are products of our culture, and yet if we were to go to another country that where turbans were in, we'd be wearing it. Because uh, even the Apostle Paul says, you know, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Jesus wore the outfits of his day, spoke the language of his day. Uh, He uh, uh, followed the customs of his day as long as they didn't contradict the scriptures. We are people that are affected by people. And there's a part of us also that desperately longs to be accepted by people. Nobody wants to be unliked. And it's a tough balance. I was reading just this week in 1 Corinthians 7 where paul it's that chapter where Paul's talking about marriage, but he also talks about the fact that a, a married man or a married woman is distracted, and they're distracted biblically because part of their interest, to use Paul's words, are divided. A single person, and he uses a single woman as an example, he says, she is devoted both body and soul to the Lord an undistracted devotion. But a married woman, her interests are divided because she's thinking also about how can she please her husband. A married man, his interests are divided. How can he please his wife? So there is a a, a biblical rightness to wanting to please others. But when the motivation is not honoring God or even serving other people, when the motivation is, I'm washing the dishes so you'll think I'm amazing, then it's a wrong motive there's a great book and I recommend you read it if you haven't and if you have read it you probably should read it again as should I and it's a book by Ed Welch Ed Welch and it's called When People Are Big and God Is Small When People Are Big and God Is Small and it's all about the fear of man and dealing with the fear of man and the fact that we all have it we all have the fear of man and you, and you could say, you know, I really don't struggle with the fear of man. Yeah, what about evangelism? How you doing there? We all struggle with the fear of man. We care about what people think about us. We want people to think well of us. And we will often compromise what we would do in a given moment with clear head and a spiritual mindset in order to get the approval of people. Well, today's text, we're going to be in Second Chronicles chapter 22, Second Chronicles 22, and it's one that's going to be a challenge to apply. I don't mean that the principles aren't clear, the trouble is that they're very clear, but they're also very tough to apply because it has to do with the fear of man and uh, the fear of people maybe is a better thing to say. We long to be loved. And as we continue in our series where we pick just certain kings from the books of Kings and Chronicles today, we're looking at King Joash, King Joash of Judah. Last week we looked at Jehoshaphat. Sort of sounds like you sneeze when you say his name. Jehoshaphat, and although he was a godly king, he made a couple of hiccup decisions. And one of his bad decisions was allowing his son to marry the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. It's like, what is he thinking? I would never let my son marry Ahab and Jezebel. Well, I say that, and then at the same time, who knows what sort of compromises we make along the way. At the time, thinking it was probably a really good idea. I it was a bad idea. This daughter of Ahab and Jezebel was named Athaliah. Remember Athaliah? She is like her mom. Jezebel, she was just like Jezebel. In fact, Athaliah is like Jezebel 2.0. When Jehoshaphat died and his son, Jehoram, took the throne, it's no surprise that he did evil because his wife uh, told him, basically, go stand in that line. That's the line you're to be in. And Athaliah, uh, she and Jehoram, their son became king, and that's who we're looking at here First of all, in Second Chronicles 22, it's going to take a little set up here to get to Joash, but believe me, it's worth it by way of application or certainly understanding. So Second Chronicles 22, look down at verse 2. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, For his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, who was a rascal, and the daughter of Ahab, who was a rascal as well, counseled their son to be a rascal. Ahaziah followed his mom's counsel and did not walk with God. We're we're told that. And it's sort of interesting. It sort of sounds a lot like what we're told a few chapters earlier when we read about Ahab and Jezebel and the summary there was Ahab was a really bad guy because he listened to his wife the, wicked, the wickedness of his wife was what is meant so Jehoram uh, and Athaliah's son became king and God takes his life because uh, he is godless well the plot thickens look down at verse 10 Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabeth, the king's daughter, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, I know the water's about to get real muddy here, and stole him from the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, <laughs> hid him from Athaliah so that she would be not, not put him to death. He was hidden with them in the house of God six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. That's clear as mud, isn't it? Well, it takes a little bit of slowing down and looking at it to make sense of it all. It does make sense. It all actually works out, but it is a little confusing to look at it. It's kind of like a reading a soap opera. When you read about uh, what's going on here But don't be confused by the names Basically, Athaliah thinks there's no sons of her husband left But she forgot about this whole polygamy thing Because her son, her uh, husband had another wife That if we were to jump ahead to chapter 24 We would see that her name in verse 1 Was Zibiah from Beersheba Just to add a little more mud to the water So there is another wife who has a son That... Uh, Athaliah didn't know about. See, this is the problem with polygamy. You never know who's pregnant. (laughs) And Athaliah clearly didn't know about this other son. Little baby boy was hidden away so that Athaliah wouldn't realize. Athaliah kills. Understand what she did. Uh, when When she saw that her own son was killed, that God put him to death, and that there were no more direct descendants of her husband so she thought she didn't realize about the pregnant uh, other wife uh she decided well I'll take care of this I'll kill all the grandchildren too so she put all the grandsons to death so there's nobody left but her now she's the queen of the land and she thinks you know all is well but we're told here that um uh, gosh, I better look or I'm going to get this all confused. Um, so let's see. Uh, yeah, polygamy doesn't work. Uh, let's see. So Joash is this, this baby boy who's taken and hidden by basically Athaliah's sister-in-law and her husband. The husband's name is Jehoiada. He is a priest. He is a godly priest. We're going to read about him for the rest of our time together. But they, essentially, are the uncle and aunt of little Joash, and they hide him. And Athaliah doesn't know that there is another son of David that's still alive. And so they hide Joash in the temple, we're told, for six years, all the while wicked Athaliah is ruling the land. All right, wouldn't this make a great movie? It'd be a great movie. So we won't look at chapter 23, but just to summarize chapter 23... Basically, the boy Joash grows up to be seven years old now. He's old enough to speak and uh, to uh, to think. Imagine a seven-year-old king. He is brought out, anointed, and he's crowned king before the people. Well, how do you think Athaliah is going to take this? When she hears about it, she yells, Treason, treason, when she sees it. And the uh, the godly priest uh, uh, basically says, hey, take, take this wicked woman outside the temple and kill her. And so they did. Boom. Problem solved. And now you've got Joash, this seven-year-old king, is now the ruler of the land. So this brings us to chapter 24. Chapter 24. Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Zibia from Beersheba, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada took two wives for him and he became the father of sons and daughters. I've got in my Bible here a question mark. He did right in the sight of the Lord and yet took two wives. So this is, you know, right Right kind of goes with the hand doing this. Uh. Our daughters had a children's book about Joash. Have you ever seen a children's book about little Joash? It they're great, you see this little baby being hidden away, and a wicked Athaliah, you know, doing all that they do. Though I don't remember exactly how they handled Athaliah killing all of these uh, boys. But anyway, the the book ends. I remember the book ends with Joash standing, you know, with the crown. This little seven year old standing with the crown. It's like. Ah, oh, it's this great happy ending. The reality is, is, no, it's just a happy beginning. This is Joash just getting started. But we're told that he reigned 40 years, and he started when he was 7. So from the age of 7 to 47, he was king. And we're told in a general sense that he did right all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And that sounds like a great statement until we keep reading and we realize that it actually means what it says, that Joash only did right as long as Jehoiada was around, as long as the priest was there. So, verse 4, we read this. It came about that after this, that Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. He gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and collect money from all Israel to repair the house of your God annually and you shall do the matter quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada, the chief priest, and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the levy fixed by Moses, the servant of the Lord, on the congregation of Israel for the tent of the testimony? For the sons of the wicked Athaliah had broken into the house of God and even used the holy things of the house of the Lord for the Baals. So we're told here that Athaliah's reign had desecrated Solomon's temple using holy things to do bad things and having been influenced by the godly priest Joash says we got to clean up the temple and to his credit he says let's clean it up and he tells the, the Levites and the priests to do it but they're a little bit slow getting it done and again to his credit he says hey get it done and they do so this is a good time to stop and just pause for a second and say do you know why we have the books of first and second chronicles when we already have second Samuel first and second kings that covers the same ground Well I remember one time at uh, at a different church of course it was a different church if you're going to use a negative illustration <laughs> but this this guy said you know, I, I got to First Chronicles and I just decided to skip Chronicles because I already read Kings. I said, hey, did you skip Mark because you've already read Matthew? I had a lot more compassion back in those days. But it's, the, it, it's a logical thing. Why do we have the same content repeated? Well, why is it repeated in the Gospels? Why do we have four Gospels on the life of Christ? Why not just one? Life of Christ gospel and these four authors can just get together over lunch and work it out because each gospel has a different emphasis on the life of Jesus. Each gospel has a very different emphasis and it's, it's like looking at the different sides of a diamond. It's got different facets you can look at and appreciate all about our Lord Jesus Christ. Kings and Chronicles had different purposes Kings was written prior to the exile, and I don't know if you've noticed, but First and Second Kings is pretty gritty. I mean, it gets into the nitty gritty of sins of these kings, and it, it really tells it like it is. And it gets into the nitty gritty to share this is why the exile happened, because you remember all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, God set up a very simple system. It's the same system you had with your parents. If you obey, things are going to be great. If you don't obey, things are not going to be great until you get back in line. It's the same system God had with Israel in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 27 through 30, God said, If you obey, I will bless you. It will rain. I'll protect you from foreign enemies. All things are going to go great. If you don't obey, I will curse you. And there's chapters on what these curses are going to look like. To get very specific, and so God basically says, if you obey, I bless you. If you disobey, I curse you, so that you'll repent, so that I can bless you. Kings and Chronicles proves God meant what he said. The king shows all the bad stuff to show why the exile happened. God says, if you disobey, I'll curse you, and I'll take you out of the land. That's the purpose of First and 2 Kings. So First and 2 Chronicles now, why do we have this repeat of the same material? Because the emphasis is different In fact 1 and 2 Chronicles is really one book We can just call it Chronicles Was written after the exile To those returning to Israel If we were to do the math And I did it again this morning Just to make sure that I was remembering it correct, correctly There are 20 kings in the northern kingdom None of them were godly There were 20 kings in the southern kingdom Including Athaliah if we want to call her a king Twenty rulers in the southern kingdom and only about eight or nine were godly depending on how you take some of them so the emphasis of chronicles is to emphasize the same time period but it emphasizes the faithfulness of israel to show that god blesses faithfulness so chronicles does the same thing that kings did it proves the blessings and the curses except chronicles is proving the blessings. So it emphasizes that all of the, the godly kings who were all in the south, which is why First and Second Chronicles focuses exclusively on Judah, the southern kingdom, because that's the only faithful kings that were there. It focuses on those particular kings and their passion for the temple. How would that be relevant to the people coming back during the exile? Because God wanted them to be passionate about the temple, about rebuilding the temple. And if you have a a passion for that, God blesses you. This is why, sort of a long sidebar here, this inclusion is mentioned here about Joash and his passion for the temple to to show that God blesses them when they have a passion for the temple. All right, so let's keep moving. Um, Look at verse 15. We're going to skip verses 8 through 14. It just gives the details of how they went about raising the money and making the repairs on the temple. But now verse 15. Now when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. He was 130 years old at his death. They buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done well in Israel and to God and his house. Again, emphasis on the temple. God blessed him. And this is such a privilege. I mean, Jehoiada was not of the sons of David, and yet he's buried in the city of David among the kings. This is like the most honored place to be buried, is with the godly kings of David. And um, so they, they bury him there, and it's it's a great honor for him. And then verse 17. So Jehoiada has died. Now verse 17. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this, their guilt." Again, you see the purpose of the author is to show when they do well, God blesses them. When they give up on God, God curses them. God curses them in order to bring them back. See, this is why all children's books about Joash stop when he becomes king. They don't want to get into this. You can't read this to kids. You, you, you grow up you know, a godly little child, and then you abandon the Lord when you get to be 47 years old. Nope. That's not it at all. God's response is, I will bless your obedience, but I will not sit back and do nothing if you're going to, uh, if you're going to raise your fist against me. I remember one time I was in Russia for uh, some pastor conference or something there, and I visited in Moscow. They have uh, their national museum is called the Armory a big beautiful museum it's got all kinds of all kinds of Russian art in it and one of the things they also had was the pieces of their history like thrones of past kings and czars and there was one particular throne I'll never forget they had it all behind glass it was like this whole wall but there was this real big throne uh, thrones, and then in the middle there was this little throne and behind the throne there was this large curtain and I read on the little plaque that they had in front I forget what the name of the czar was but the czar took uh, rain began to start raining when he was still a boy and didn't really know this or that and the curtain was behind his throne because his sister would stand behind the curtain and tell him what to say <laughs> let's hope that was good let's hope she gave him good counsel but I saw that and thought, that's that's kind of like Joash, isn't it? You've got this little king, this little seven-year-old king who begins and thankfully, the guy behind the curtain was godly, the godly priest, Jehoiada. Jehoiada was a great priest. They buried him in the tombs of the kings when he died. And yet, as soon as he died, Joash turned. Joash was vulnerable. Notice... Back in verse 2, it, said, it says, Joash did write all the days of Jehoiada. Verse 14, which we didn't read, but you could look at it, it says they worshiped in the temple basically there at the end of the verse, all the days of Jehoiada. And that prepares us for what we read in verse 17. Jehoiada dies, and with him, the spiritual life of the nation. It was wrapped up in the influence of this godly priest, he was the one talking behind the curtain. And even though Joash's mouth was moving, it was really the passion for God of this priest and not of the king. And everybody knew this. That's why they waited until Jehoiada died to come up to King Joash. And notice they bow down before him. It's almost like they flatter him and persuade him that it's better for them to go back to the ways of Athaliah. Why in the world they did this, I don't know, but there it is. You know, you never really know what kind of a job you did as a parent until you see your kids living their own lives and then parenting their own kids. That's probably got some fun in it, too. But the idea is once your presence is removed, then you can see what your influence has been. The life of Joash was an example of that. It's a striking study of a people pleaser. More important to Joash than the affirmation of God was the affirmation of people. Joash needed others to be strong in the Lord. He didn't have his own passionate walk with God that could say to these these rulers that came up to him, no, we ain't doing that. Instead, he says, we will do it. The book of Proverbs says these words, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will what? Suffer harm. Exactly. He who walks with wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Literally, the Hebrew says, shall suffer evil. and In fact, you could even translate it, shall become evil. The companion of fools shall become evil evil. Joash gives us a great illustration of how important it is to surround ourselves with godly people to have godly influences and also that we be a godly influence to others around us. It's not all about us being influenced and putting ourselves in a position to where others are influencing us as important as that is we need to make sure that we are also influencing others for Christ uh, beginning with family as well as those around us. This doesn't mean that we're never around the godless or unbelievers. Of course not. We have to be. The Great Commission commands us to be. But the question that we always want to ask in that context is, who is influencing whom? Because somebody is influencing somebody. We have to always be guarded. With unbelievers, it's a one-way street in our mind. Our goal is to influence them. Here, among fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's a two-way street. I influence you, you influence me, and I need your influence, and you need my influence. It goes both ways here. Iron sharpens iron, Proverbs says. But it's also true that a dull tool will dull even more another tool, if we want to use that same metaphor. So we need to be around the sharp tools. Our uh, music minister Don McMinn has written a great book called "Love One Another." Anybody read Don's book, "Love One Another"? Oh, literally one person in this class. Amazon's got it. Okay, so I urge you to get it. It's a great book. It's sort of a, a written in sort of a, a study form, but you can still get a lot out of it just to read it. But he basically he covers all the one another's in uh, in the Bible, and there's. Love one another, prefer one another, accept one another, greet one another, encourage one another, carry one another's burdens, comfort one another, forgive one another, admonish one another, pray for, wait for, honor, hospitality, live in peace, care for. That's a lot of one another's. And what does that say? We need one another. We need all that in the body of Christ. We've got to surround ourselves with those who will influence us for good and whom we can influence for good. So, Here's a principle, if it's not already obvious, that we can apply to our lives. Something Joash teaches us as well as the whole of Scripture is that we need to cultivate personal convictions which can only occur by a personal walk with God. We need to cultivate personal convictions which can only occur by a personal walk with God. Joash is a great example of how important it is that not only we have others around us that influence us well, but if those people leave, and eventually they will, because God takes them places, they die, something, that you've got to be able to stand on your own. And if you don't have your own walk with God, what are you going to do when God in his sovereignty takes away those you're relying on? Because it happens. Herbert Swope wrote this, I can't give you the formula for success, but I can give you the formula for failure. Try and please everybody. You ever tried to please everybody? You ever seen a chicken running around with with his head cut off? It's a pretty close, similar activity. Aristotle said this, It's easy to avoid all criticism. All you have to do is say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. In other words, if you're breathing and you're doing stuff, you're going to be criticized. We can't live to try to just avoid conflict. None of us likes conflict. There are a few that seem to really love it, but most of us don't, and we'll often go far to try to avoid conflict. We can't avoid it if we're going to be honest with each other. a lot of us have mentors who have discipled us and encouraged us in our walk with God. You can probably think of people in your life uh, immediately, boom, it was a pastor, it was a teacher, it was a parent, it was a sibling, it was a friend. You've got their name, you've got their face, you've got exactly what they did in your life to influence you. But they're probably, perhaps, not in your life now for whatever reason. And When that person leaves or dies, or worse, when that person fails in their walk with Christ, or you get to see the underbelly that you never saw because all you ever saw was through rose-colored glasses how wonderful this person is, the reality is they're just a person, they're just a man, they're just a woman, and they sin just like we do. If you don't stand on your own, if you have not cultivated personal convictions by a personal walk with God, when the Lord in his sovereignty removes that mentor from your life to reveal who are you with me? Not who are you with the mentor with me, but who are you with me? What do you do? Do you punt the faith? Do you say, well, it doesn't work for that guy. There's no way it's going to work for me. G Campbell Morgan wrote this: However valuable the influence of another person may be, it remains true that a man or a woman has nothing more to lean that if a man or a woman has nothing more to lean on than that, if it should fail, collapse is inevitable. All foundations fail except one. When the will of man is yielded wholly to the will of God and no other authority is sought or allowed, that man is safe, that woman is safe. So can you stand alone without your mentor, without the person who encourages you? I hope you can. And if you can't, then you and I need to cultivate personal convictions that come from a personal walk with God. Think of Daniel in Persia think of joseph in egypt think of jesus on planet earth everyone they were all by themselves everyone had abandoned them in that sense and yet they walked with god well here's a second principle joash his life shows us we need to grow to fear god not people we need to grow to fear god not people What does it mean to fear God? To be God-fearing, maybe that's a better way to say it. You know, here in the South, we usually say, you're a God-fearing person. Though these days, what in the world does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're afraid of God, God, God-terror. It may begin there, but that's not what it means. It was Mark Twain who said, Man is the only animal that blushes and the only animal that needs to. The truth is, we are all ashamed of things we've done in the past. And if you don't realize that you're forgiven, then you're not free. You are chained to that memory. You are chained to that shame. We can't look God in the face or anybody else in the face if we don't realize that our shame is linked to our sin and Jesus Christ in His grace on the cross, has removed our sin from us because he paid the full penalty. He bore the full wrath of God for you and for me. So we need to grow to fear God, not people. We don't need people. This is that book that I recommended, When People Are Big and God Are Small. It has sort of a, a, a big takeaway, is to learn to love people more and to need them less. And he makes a pretty compelling point that one of the things that we need people for is the Great Commission, because we can't do all the spiritual gifts. We need one another to fulfill the Great Commission. But our needs mostly flow straight to God and not to people. Straight to God and not to people. If you want to think about who it is you're fearing, think about who it is you're sacrificing for. We give our money, we give our time, we give our thoughts, and our passions for that which we are worshiping. Um, Biblically, when you fear somebody, you're not just afraid of them. But biblical fear moves from terror to awe to reverence to trust to obedience to worship. And we will find ourselves worshiping people when we feel like we have to have them. This was Joe Ash's problem. I'm not sure that he ever realized that. But this was at least the problem as it's revealed here in the text. Some people sacrifice their ethics or their morality in order to avoid loneliness or to have the love of somebody they need. Or we will to the Lord. We will sacrifice for him, realizing he is the one we need. He is the one we worship. I like what Woody Allen says. I don't know, do we, can we quote Woody Allen in church? <laughs> Woody Allen said this, Someone asked me if my dream was to live on in the hearts of people. I said, I'd prefer to live on in my apartment. You drop dead one day, and it means less than nothing if billions of people are singing your praises every day, all day long. See, the praise of people, even Woody Allen realizes, is not worth it. Wouldn't it be great, I don't know, I don't want to judge the man, maybe he accepted Christ last night, but um, we need to take from that and realize we are really close at times on our bad days to worshiping people and realize that if I don't have the approval of my spouse, if I don't have the admiration of my kids or grandkids, if Chuck doesn't think I'm the greatest you know, volunteer here at the church, then my world's going to cave in. Your world is not going to cave in. How are you with Christ? Is all well there? Are you doing everything you can in your walk with Christ? If that's the case, then you continue walking and let the chips fall where they may. It really scares me sometimes when I see churches swell because of one man. And I know you th- you probably think I'm thinking of Chuck and I'm not necessarily, though It can apply to our megachurch as well as to any. But it it is frightful when a church is built. Again, I'm not saying we are, but just leave it there. When a church is built because of one man, if a pastor is so exceptionally gifted and then all of a sudden that pastor is taken, boom. Who are we? Who are we? And you see this sometimes and how ironic that I'm saying this where well Chuck's actually not here but if he's not preaching nobody wants to come. Uh, I actually know about a church and now this one I can say confidently it wasn't this church. I'm aware of another megachurch in the world in which they call whenever the pastor's not preaching they'll call and they'll ask who's preaching today? And one time I I heard that the staff member got so tired of hearing this got so tired of hearing this phone call that uh, they would answer uh, who's preaching today? The servant of the Lord (laughs) Paul said to those in Corinth who said you know I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ Paul said was Paul crucified for you? We don't worship a person. We worship our Savior. So, Paul also told the Philippians, he said, So then, my brethren, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation, meaning live it out with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We don't just act the way we need to when Paul's looking. We're not living to please Paul. We're living to please God. And he's always there, isn't he? So how can we grow in our fear of the Lord? Well, look at verse 19. Joash abandoned the Lord, and look what the Lord did. Verse 19. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which his father, Jehoiada, interesting, he's called his father. His father, Jehoiada, had shown him, but he murdered his son. And as he died, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. Zechariah is the name of this priest. You know what Zechariah means? His name means the Lord remembers. Joash didn't remember. We're told here Joash did not remember the kindness of this great priest who had uh, raised him to know the Lord and now Jehoiada's son, this prophet uh, is killed at the command of Joash himself. Amazing. But you know what I love about the heart of God from these verses? We see it right there in verse 19. He sent prophets to them. God initiated when Joash had wandered away from God God didn't say, okay, done. God sent prophets. He sent his word to Joash and said, come back. In fact, we're told to send word, prophets to bring them back to the Lord. Now, let's get real personal. When you're not walking with God, or you're struggling with a thought that you wish you could let go, or you're nurturing Sin in your heart for whatever reason in whatever context and you're also attempting to read the Bible have you ever noticed that's all you see there the scripture will chase you God sends his prophets to bring you back when you are out of fellowship with God you are hypersensitive to that topic And the Holy Spirit will continually bring it before you in order to draw you back. It's not just conviction so you'll feel horrible. It is conviction so that you'll repent, so that I'll repent and come back to the Lord. God chases us with Scripture. We see that in verse 19. He sent prophets to them to bring them back. Interesting. we're talking about scripture Jesus actually quoted this story or referred to this story and you may have a, um, a reference in your margin to Matthew chapter 23 Matthew 23 you don't need to turn there but you remember Jesus just sort of gave this one off illustration he said that uh, he, he said all the prophets from righteous Abel to the priest Zachariah who was killed in the temple is referring to this incident he said you know the judgment, uh, all the guilt from all the prophets will be laid at the foot of this generation but you know that, that had a purpose for that context but you know what also Jesus did for us in, those, in that statement he defined what the Old Testament was he says all the prophets so righteous Abel, what book is that? Genesis, Genesis. exactly, so that's book number one Zechariah who was killed between the temple and the altar, what book is that? Second Chronicles, exactly What <laughs> wasn't a trick question We just read it Second Chronicles So Genesis was the first book, obviously And we said earlier, what were the last books written in the Old Testament? Chronicles So Jesus is saying from Genesis to Chronicles All the Old Testament, he defined it And also interesting that uh, at this time the Apocrypha had been written but was not included in Jesus' statement here. He just mentioned the Jewish prophets. Well, anyway, God sought them, and he sent his word, and he does the same in our lives. He chases us with the Bible, not just so that we'll feel bad, but so that we will repent and come back to him. Well, what happens in our lives when we fear people instead of God? Look at verse 23. May the Lord see and avenge, and he does, did. Verse 23, It happened at the turn of the year that the army of the Arameans came up against them, and they came to Judah and Jerusalem, destroyed all the officials of the people. Note, he took care of the ones who influenced Joash first, Scored the officials of the people from among the people, and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Indeed, the army of the Arameans came with a small number of men, yet the Lord delivered a very great army into their hands because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. Verse 25. When they had departed from him, for they left him very sick, his own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and murdered him on his bed. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the king. Joe let me ask you what do you feel the greatest need in your life is is it a spouse is it money is it a new car what is your greatest need we make a mental list of what angers you or depresses you the most that's another way to find it what angers you or depresses you the most Whatever that topic is, it's very possible that that is what is most important in your life or that you feel that you must have to be whole. And the reality is all we need is Christ. All we need is God. Sounds simple. It sounds real biblical. And it's often a tough journey to get from where we are now to that ideal. But that is a journey we should pursue. That is a journey that we must pursue. We do this because our God alone is worthy of worship. So the principles, again, that I mentioned, I'll just say them again in summary. We need to cultivate personal convictions which can only occur by personal walk with God. And we need to grow to fear God, not people. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, The scripture is full of these cautionary tales of people that start well and don't end well. That is not who we want to be. Regardless of how we started, maybe we grew up in a godly home, maybe our parents didn't do the best job of introducing us to Christ, but however it happened in your great grace and providence, we know Christ now and our passion is to walk faithfully with him till the end of our days whether the end of our days is in 10 years from now or in another 80 we want to be faithful not like joash that started well but revealed that he was only strong because of someone else father would you please help us strengthen us through the challenges the trials that you bring through our life our lives We want to walk with you one-on-one. And yet at the same time, we realize that it's not just a one-on-one thing. That we have the responsibility and privilege to influence others and to allow others to influence us. In all of these things, give us your grace. Chase us with Scripture to bring us back onto the path when we wander. And give us the heart, the tender heart, that would respond well, repent, and enjoy the fellowship that you intend us to enjoy. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Wayne. Hope you all have a blessed week. Pray for rain. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.